Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Monday, August 5th. In today's news, the man who killed his sister and eight others in Dayton, Ohio, had made a hit list. The killer in El Paso is being treated as a domestic terrorist, and Texas plans to seek the death penalty. Two cities, 13 hours, 29 dead. Will anything change? But first, the big idea. President Trump has relentlessly used his bully pulpit to decry Latino migration as an invasion of our country. He has demonized undocumented immigrants as thugs and animals. He has defended the detention of migrant children, hundreds of whom have been held in squalor. And he's warned that without a wall to prevent people from crossing the border from Mexico, America would no longer be America. At a rally in May in the panhandle of Florida, he lamented that people could not be stopped from coming over the border. Someone in the crowd yelled, shoot them. The audience of thousands cheered. Trump smiled. Shrugging off the suggestion, he quipped, only in the panhandle can you get away with that statement. On Saturday, a 21-year-old white man entered a shopping center in El Paso and allegedly decided to shoot them. Inside a crowded Walmart in a vibrant border city visited daily by thousands of Mexicans, a late-morning back-to-school shopping spree turned into a pool of blood. Twenty people died and dozens more were wounded. After yet another mass slaying, the question surrounding the president is no longer whether he will respond as other presidents once did, but whether his words contributed to the carnage. Since the moment Trump rode down his gold-plated escalator four years ago to start his renegade run for the White House, us-against-them language has been a feature, not a bug. Absent from his repertoire has been a forceful repudiation of the white nationalism taking rise on his watch. Authorities in El Paso haven't announced a motive, but at the center of their investigation is an anti-immigrant manifesto. Officials believe the shooter posted it just minutes before he opened fire, but they continue to investigate. Patrick Crucius has been named as the suspect. Portions of the 2,300-word essay titled The Inconvenient Truth closely mirror Trump's rhetoric, as well as the language of the white nationalist movement, including a warning about the Hispanic invasion of Texas, in his words. The author's ideology is so aligned with the president's that he decided to conclude his manifesto by clarifying that his views predate Trump's 2016 campaign and arguing that blaming him would amount to, quote, fake news, another Trump phrase. The extent to which the El Paso shooter was motivated by the president's words will be fiercely debated in the days to come and could be answered by the investigation. But some Democratic leaders on Sunday said Trump's demagoguery makes him plainly culpable. Beto O'Rourke, a former congressman from El Paso running for president, said it is appropriate to label Trump a white nationalist and said his rhetoric is reminiscent of Nazi Germany. Mick Mulvaney, the acting White House chief of staff, flatly dismissed the suggestion that Trump bears any blame. He said on Meet the Press that he thinks the guy would have done the same thing if Hillary Clinton was president. Ensconced over the weekend at his New Jersey golf club, Trump himself was silent about the El Paso massacre other than a few tweets. Then on Sunday afternoon, as he flew back to the White House, Trump announced that he had ordered federal government flags flown at half-staff and that he'll address the shootings in a speech today at 10 a.m. Regardless of the El Paso shooter's motivations, Trump throughout his presidency has stoked fear and hatred of the other, whether Latino immigrants or black people living in cities or Muslims. Just think about the attacks on the squad and Elijah Cummings from the last two weeks. FBI Director Chris Wray testified two weeks ago before a Senate committee 
that the Bureau has seen a recent uptick in the number of domestic terrorism arrests and that most involved some form of white supremacy. But Trump has done little to vigorously confront this crisis that his own government is trying to combat. In the wake of the deadly 2017 white supremacist rally in Charlottesville, Virginia, Trump at first claimed there were good people on both sides before later backtracking, only under pressure from his advisors. And after a white supremacist was accused of killing 51 Muslims in New Zealand earlier this year, Trump dismissed the idea that white nationalism is a rising threat. And that's the big idea. Here's what else you need to know about the weekend of bloodshed in America. Number one, in the hours before the mass shooting in Dayton, Ohio on Sunday, siblings Connor and Megan Betts drove the family's 2007 Corolla to visit Dayton's historic Oregon district, an area alive on a summer night with restaurants, bars, and nightlife. Then, according to police, they separated. It's not clear what Megan, 22, did at this point, but Connor, 24, donned a mask, body armor and ear protection, wielding an AR-15 like assault weapon and magazines containing 100 rounds. He set out on a street rampage that, although it only lasted about 30 seconds, killed nine people and injured 27 others. Among the first to die was Megan Betts. Her male companion was injured, but he survived. Less than a minute into the barrage, police patrolling the area saw people fleeing, and they neutralized Connor Betts. He was shot to death. As he was about to enter a bar where dozens of people had run to hide, authorities said that in Dayton, four women and five men were killed. Of the 27 who were injured, 15 had been discharged from a hospital as of Sunday afternoon. That's the good news. Exactly what precipitated the chaos is still unknown, but Connor Betts had been very troubled in high school. Midway through his freshman year, the school became aware that he was carrying around with him a hit list, including classmates of people he wanted to take revenge on. David Partridge, 26, who attended that high school with Betts, said the list included a member of his family. Number two, those who know the El Paso suspect, Crucius, describe him as strange and off-putting with very few friends. Yet on Sunday, it was still unclear why Crucius decided to drive nearly 10 hours from his hometown outside Dallas to El Paso. The police say, though, that he's cooperating and answering all their questions after surrendering. John Bash, the U.S. attorney for the Western District of Texas, says he'll be treated as a domestic terrorist. He said that possible charges, including hate crimes and firearm charges, could carry a death sentence. Jamie Esparza, the El Paso County District Attorney, said that the state has also filed capital merger charges against Crucius and will seek the death penalty as well. Crucius was raised in Allen, Texas. It's a predominantly white and affluent suburb just north of Dallas. His childhood also had challenges. His parents divorced in 2011, and his father chronicled a four-decade drug addiction in a self-published memoir. On Sunday, Crucius's parents and siblings didn't return our phone calls or emails seeking comment. When a Washington Post reporter approached one relative near her home, she quickly ran inside and declined to comment. Number three, the Republican Party, which controls power in Washington and both states where America's most recent mass shootings occurred, struggled on Sunday to provide a response or offer a solution to what has become a public safety epidemic. There were thoughts and prayers. There was an appeal to donate blood and there were accolades for law enforcement. Some Republicans, including House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy and Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, cited the influence of social media in video games or mentioned mental health problems. But on the question of how to stem the tide of gun violence, the overwhelming response from the party was silence or generalities. 
The reaction mirrored how the GOP has responded to other recent mass shootings whose city names have become painfully familiar to most Americans. Parkland, Sutherland Springs, Las Vegas, Virginia Beach, Pittsburgh, Poway, Annapolis, so many more. A handful of Republican lawmakers on Sunday endorsed stricter gun controls, but most in the GOP ignored Democratic demands that the Senate abandon its summer recess and return to Washington to address the issue. The House in February, which is controlled by Democrats, passed two bills that Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, the Kentucky Republican, has refused to consider or bring up for a vote. Congress has been unable to agree on sweeping gun legislation since the 1990s. Lawmakers tried and failed after the 2012 shootings in Newtown, Connecticut, killed 20 kids, but the NRA's support for the party, the demands of rural voters, and Republican warnings about undermining Second Amendment rights have made it nearly impossible to take any meaningful steps forward. Senator John Cornyn, the Republican from Texas, part of GOP leadership, said in a tweet that lawmakers, quote, need to keep trying, but that, quote, sadly, there are some issues like homelessness and these shootings where we simply don't have all the answers. And that's The Daily 202 for Monday, August 5th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Holman. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Thank you.